Hello, my name is Cameron Wolf, and I'll be having a conversation with Yael Palumpas for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's communal, Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is March 6, 2019, and this is being recorded at Yale's apartment in Brooklyn. Um, so hi. hi, thank you so much for um, taking time to speak today in your gorgeous home. Mm. Um, I like to begin just by asking people to kind of share um, the constellation of identities that, mm. that, that feel kind of important mm. for our listeners to mm. just kind of get a sense of who we're, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who they're meeting today. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, I identify as uh, gender non-conforming and non-binary. Um, androgyny is something that very much um, feels at home in my body. Um, and uh, queerness in general. Um, I would say that other ways that um, I feel like a constellation of sort of things that make up my personhood, um, being a survivor, um, being somebody who um, is from, I would say someone who's from a very strong Greek family, um, but is also estranged from that family. and uh, being a healer and a mystic um, that pulls from um, various ancestral practices. Um, I'm a dance artist. Um, I am disabled. Uh, I have a vision impairment and other kind of chronic pain and um, stuff around um, invisible, invisible disabilities related to mental health. Um, so I, I'm very involved in like disability justice and um, and also even before I became disabled myself I w- I'm, was raised by a disabled parent um, my mom has epilepsy so it's something that's been really um, in my awareness since I've been born um, other things uh, I work as an end-of-life doula so I support people who are dying and grieving um, and um, do all kinds of things related to, um, you know, end-of-life care um, and grief support. Um, I think that that, I said I was a dance artist already, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, so it's like a lot of little things, but I think that that is a good summary. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah, hopefully we'll be able to touch on a lot of those different um kind of stars in the constellation mm-hmm, that, that mm-hmm, make mm-hmm. up you throughout the course of this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, to start, I, um, uh, you talk about being, um, and on your, your website, you kind of mentioned being from a long line of mm. um, witches and mystics. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of curious um, if you have, like, what's your earliest memory that you can think of, mm. of that, like, family mm. Earliest tradition? memory. Well, a few come to mind. Like, I mean, it's because I have different lineages, and so different things come to mind on each side. I would say with my mother, um, she, her um, lineage, she's um, Irish, and um, yeah, so there's sort of like her way of engaging with um, 
magic and I don't even know if she would necessarily use that word but engaging with like the spirit world is like very kind of it is very Irish in the sense that it's like very daily and sort of mundane like she just like has a practice of like speaking to the dead but she would like talk to like my grandfather and she'd be like walking throughout the house and she'd be telling my grandfather to shoo she would be like shoo shoo like she you know she she would like be like she was like let me do go about my business like that mm-hmm. was you know very much like her um her way always and um she's always had um very psychic dreams um so i remember her talking in depth about um some of these psychic dreams which actually often had like a predictive quality she would be the person in my family who she she would often know either when someone had just died or was about to die um through these psychic dreams that she would have and she would tell um she also um remembers i believe like three of her past lives um but really only like basically the point of death at the three of her whatever these past lives are and this is something that she just has always i don't have a i don't really know i can't pinpoint like a time when she first shared to me the different um ways that she died in these past lives but it's like one of my earliest memories and it sort of was just this like like a factual thing of like oh yeah this is this is where i lived this is where i was and um and so those are so for my mom it was sort of this like kind of like daily almost like storytelling i think that um was uh very much a part of it um on my father's side um from the like greek and turkish mysticisms i would say it's like remembering my like great theas um reading the cups um and like um, basically we would all gather very regularly and um they would you know make the special um greek slash turkish talk coffee and um and then read the coffee grounds um to each other as like a form of um you know divinity and um or divination rather um and sort of um so that's that's something that i remember also stuff like around like the evil eye mm-hmm. um as like a you know they call it mati or kamsa um and uh, as like a way of like warding off protection like these kinds of things that people nowadays just sort of write off as like superstition but at one time um had like much um greater sort of like magical um like import i would say in terms of how people like the reverence that people and like the belief that people had around it Mm -hmm. Mm um where and um so it's interesting, like, it seems like with your, like, great theas and your mom, it's, it's, um, it's like a thing that women in your family yeah, do. Yeah, very much. Yeah, no, that's definitely very true because, I mean, the, yeah, on my mom's side, um, it was very much passed down, um, because, so my mother, as I mentioned, has epilepsy and, but many of the women on my mom's side have epilepsy. It's something that has happened over the years. I've had like aunts and people that go back further that I don't know personally, but that, um, it would happen after they would start having seizures after either a difficult pregnancy or miscarriage. It would be like a hormonal imbalance that would, um, cause them to start having seizures. And, um, it was really only since like the 1960s that um, epilepsy was um, started to be treated a little bit differently, meaning that like um, it was considered a, more of a disability and rather than people getting put like locked up in like institutions for like, 
you know, insanity or, um, or in some cases, like, being thought to, like, be inhabited by demons. So, like, mm-hmm. women on that side in particular were um, often thought to be witches by other people or, or, or treated in various, like, oppressive manners. Um, like, I, I definitely have, like, at least one great aunt who I know for a fact was in a mental institution because of her um, epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, interestingly enough, though, because... Um, they were therefore not receiving the actual medical care that they needed as people with disabilities and 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 to address their seizures um they did have to start looking to other sorts of like esoteric practices um like herbalism and um dream work and tarot and like these these various things um mainly i think pulling again from these sort of like gaelic um, pagan roots, but also um, from like the like Appalachian South, which is where um, they were. They lived when they came and, and settled here. Um, eventually, they were they came like during the Irish famine um, and then settled there. So I think that some of the um, the the magic and the things that they pulled from was also from that environment as well. Um, and so. Um, so yeah, so they were having to figure out ways to heal themselves through, through these other means, which which then meant that some of them decided to sort of take on the identity of witches themselves. So some of them, it was like they were called that by others, and then others, it was like they took that identity on themselves. But I also like with my mom's side, I, I always say it's like the the way in which they're witches is very much not like sort of like what I think of as like California hippie woo witch like that's not the lineage at all it's like very much like like I said like the sort of like Irish and um like Appalachian sort of like folk magic um it feels like is what my mom's side pulls from and very much all women and then um the and then my father's side yeah it was the it was the it was again the women that sort of like you know were the ones to I would say, like, bring forward these traditions. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if, like, it's in part because, like, in, like, Greek Orthodoxy, which I was also, interestingly, like, very entrenched in, like, um, that was, like, a very important cultural part of my upbringing, um, was going to church regularly for many, many hours and um, being a part of, like, this very conservative, very old religion. And, but, and in Greek Orthodoxy, and the way that it was practiced within my family and my com- my family's community was, um, you know, it is like a very much like a patriarchal system. I mean, literally the the Pope is called the patriarch, you know, like so. So it's like that's sort of like where that lineage comes from. And therefore the men, though the spiritual role that the men took on was that of leading the church. So like my father and my papu um, uh, were the choir directors at our church, and that was the way in which they sort of embodied this very formalized, like, religious um, spirituality, which also was very entrenched in patriarchy and sexism. Um, and the women that were not allowed to participate in in the same sorts of ways um, as the men were in those, like, religious roles... Um, interestingly, I think, took on um, these other modalities of having a spiritual connection, which was like through, in some ways, I think maybe some of these like older practices that are connected to like the evil eye or whatnot. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you grew up in Chicago. I did, is yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So what, um, if you could kind of paint us a picture about um, 
kind of siblings, like what your, um, what that like childhood mm-hmm. or like early community yeah. looked like. And, um, and I guess like how, um, so you said you were like deeply entrenched in this Greek Orthodox church and went really often, mm-hmm. um, but that your mom also has like, um, family from the Appalachian South. Mm-hmm. So yeah, kind of how, how these things like manifested in your early, yeah, totally. early year. Yeah. So, I mean, hmm. So I have one sister um, who's younger than me. We are 13 months apart. I'm older, um, but only by a very small amount. So my mom was like really pregnant back to back, like almost for two years straight. So um, so we're very close in age. Um, and, um, you know, it was Chicago in the early 80s. I was born in 1982. So... Um, it's interesting to sort of think back on that time and think about like what was happening politically at that time and the ways in which like we were sheltered from it or like within like the the AIDS crisis at that time and um you know we lived we lived in a place called Forest Park um which is which is within the city limits um, but it's strange to think of myself as like a queer child because I, I very much like think <laughs> I very much think of myself yeah there was like queerness sort of like feels like when I it's like that thread I can sort of find it at the like since the beginning of my own time um, it's strange to think of myself as being um, shielded and sheltered from what was going on with what has become you know my queer community my LGBT community and like um and the the suffering of like those elders um at that time and the struggle and the political activism it's just that's something that I think about um of like I don't know just as something like I remember growing up um and hearing things on the news you know like about about the AIDS crisis and asking and like I remember like I don't know being old enough to be able to ask like what is AIDS and um my family was just kind of like don't like don't worry like you 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 don't have to worry you're not gonna get it like it was kind of it was like you don't have to like just trying to like like push the the thing aside but not really giving me any actual answers or information it was very much like turn off the tv now (laughs) um so uh and so and chicago is a strange place because it's um it's a city it's like i think it's the third largest city in in the u.s but and it's in certain ways like architecturally and things like that it looks very much like new york city um but it is in the midwest it's like smack dab in the middle of the midwest and it very quickly dissipates into the suburbs and then to farmland for miles and so it has still as a city like a very like what i would call like a midwestern mentality that like is very like I very rarely go back to visit now, but um, when I have, like in my adult life, gone back, it's like a big culture shock and be, to be like, wow, like the level of like a type of like Midwestern conservatism that exists in this city feels very strong um, in certain ways. Um, so that's interesting to think back on, like that's like a, a very much a, a thing that like I was raised by, this sort of like, um, midwest mannerism or something like that how Um, would you i'm curious like how you would um uh it's like a a, a, like a how did that like what kinds of mannerisms or what kinds of conservatism how do i describe that so 
So it, it, for me, it's also, it's like when you're a kid, it's hard to par- piece apart, like how much of this was like a sort of like Midwest cultural thing, how much of this was like conservatism that was coming from through Greek Orthodoxy and a kind of like what was considered, um, you know, proper within that context as well. I can't really piece it apart fully, but like, um, but in terms of um, what I can identify now, um, so... Okay, how do I describe it? Like, uh, so in the South, where I've also lived, um, there's like a thing that happens where like people will ask you questions that seem like they're being um, like hospitable, but they're actually being invasive. Like they're like, you know, like it's like it's kind of this thing of like, um, you know, like, like. I don't know. Like I, I, I was, I was in the South, and like a waitress would ask, whatever. Like, so where are y'all from, or whatever. But it was like looking at it, a, very much. You could see in the tone of where she was asking about where are y'all from, and and what do y'all. It was essentially not just where are y'all from, but what are you doing here? Like as a table of like queer, like interracial queers that were in this like very specific area in at that time, Ruralville, Mississippi. Um, and so it was like this kind of thing of like, like trying to be hospitable, but also trying to like get the information. Um, I think that the Midwest, so the Midwest also has its version of that, um, but I'm trying, I'm, I'm having a hard time like putting my finger on like how it would be verbalized and articulated, but it's like this kind of like, um, I don't know, like sort of, uh, I don't know, like uh, it has something to do with with hospitality and about information retrieval. It's funny. Um, yeah, I, I grew up. I grew up in Cleveland, mm, mm-hmm. and I always think about it as as like being very formal. Oh, interesting. As like yeah, part of it. Totally, because and that's actually that's a little bit of a different thing that I think that that's why I'm having a hard time putting my finger on it because I'm very much informal in my own mannerisms in a lot of ways and can be very like blunt and abrupt, um, which actually I think has to do a lot. That that was one way in which my Greek family, I think, was a counter to mm-hmm. the Midwest mentality because like that, like culturally within my Greek family, it's like very thought of to be like loud and to be like, you know, very outspoken and like in, in certain things, you know what I mean? Um, and my mom's that way too. I also think that for, that's like also like a working class thing that um, my family very much like fell into um, the sort of like brashness that I think goes on in like some working class households. Um, so so that's like a little bit different than yeah that was like a way that my family countered like the Midwest sort of type of conservatism that I think falls into this more like formality mm-hmm. and also maybe because my mom also does is from like the Appalachian South which is more like it's like it's like maybe her way and, and like like in terms of it like uh is yeah is more of this like southern thread or something like that that also made its way into our home but in terms of like chicago yeah it is this kind of like formalism but somehow it's something about politeness mm-hmm. but that somehow also ends up being kind of invasive <laughs> um yeah so it's i don't i don't know how else to describe it really but um with um so so yeah so 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 there's that piece i mean i would say that um in terms of like my home life um you know i was raised very much in a very abusive household um i it's like this it's this complicated thing like when i think back on it because i feel like nothing is 
straightforward or linear and like um yeah I so my father is my abuser and my mom's abuser um and um yeah he he raped my mom repeatedly he um also sexually abused me and verbally abused all of us and there was like a lot of like threats of um violence um even though he in the sense that um he didn't i was not beaten um but he would like punch holes in the walls and um there was like a threat of impending potential violence um and he also threatened our lives fairly regularly so it was like this like verbal abuse that basically was like this kind of thing of like if like if you don't behave in a certain manner outside of our this household like it was like all about like very much like about his um reputation and ego um because he was this as i said like this very prominent figure within our church um that if we didn't put forward this um, particular type of image that he wanted to project, um, there would be consequences at home. And, um, you know, and for instance, like some of the consequences being like with, like for like my mom too, like if, if my mom left him, like if she divorced him, that would be like his biggest failure, you know, like that ultimately when she finally did leave him, it was sort of like his biggest, that was like the thing that kind of broke him open. And um, so, you know, but, to get her to not leave him, he would threaten to like, you know, kill all of us and kill himself in the process. And it was like this constant terrorism, like we were being terrorized um, on a daily basis in our home environment. But then strangely on the outside of the home environment, there was this like high functioning performativism um, because we were very entrenched in like a very close knit Greek um, community through the church. Um, and I do also have like, that's where it's complex. Cause I have like, I have some fond memories of those, of those relationships and, um, that sense of community, that cultural community, um, that I now feel has a kind of fraughtness cause I don't have access to it anymore. Cause I'm estranged from my father and that whole side of my family. Um, so it's strange cause we were both extremely controlled and isolated but also entrenched like deeply entrenched in a huge number of people's lives like we have like a really big family there um, through my father's side and so we would and we would see them weekly like it was like a very regular occurrence of gathering um so it was yeah so that was like a, a confusing way to grow up i'd say <laughs> um and uh with my mom um you know she because um so she had to convert to orthodoxy in order to marry my father um that was like you know you you weren't allowed to get married unless both people were or greek orthodox and my father's generation was the first generation to like marry like non-greek people supposedly um so she converted, um, but it was really just like a sort of for her, it was just kind of like a functional thing, like to be able to to marry him. Like um, she did have to like take classes and things like that or whatever. But like that was like in a time where all of the ceremonies, the, the ceremonies as well as the services of any kind were all speaking completely in Greek. And my mom doesn't speak Greek. We were never taught to speak Greek. So like she 
was quote-unquote learning things, but not in a language that she actually spoke. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting because, like, she, I don't think she really ever had, like, a real spiritual investment, you know, like, in that religion. It was just a formality. Um, and so she took with her the sort of uh, spirituality that had been passed down from from her mother and the other people and the other, her aunts and things like that. Um, and she, um, you know, interestingly, she, it's like, so she, she, I don't know, like there was like this like weird separation between the two of them. Like the home, my mom, like the home life was like very much like my mother's domain in the sense that like my father worked really long hours my mom because she was disabled um was not able to work as many like long hours and she also um but the way that she was able to work is she's a domestic worker she's been a nanny my whole life and so we would she would run um a a child care center essentially out of our home so and I would like help her with the kids and things like that and um so she um yeah, I don't know. So she was able to, I would say, quote unquote, like, get away with a lot of things in terms of like, um, just the stories that she would tell, like, she would just, you know, like, just like share things with me, but it, it always kind of felt like this, like, private life that she and I would have, like a closeness that she and I would be able to get that felt very separate from my father. Um, and he, um, an example, though, is that like, of like, one time it like merging was like, actually, when I was gifted my first set and only set I've ever used of tarot cards. Um, when, so my mom, without really thinking about it, um, slipped them into my Easter basket um, as like as like part of my, my Easter present. Um, and to her, it was just like a, a gift, you know, it wasn't something that she like thought too much about. How old would you have been? Then I would have been, I got them when I was like 12, I think. So yeah, so she slipped them into my Easter basket when I was about 12. And um, and the next morning when I was like, you know, going through my Easter basket on Greek Easter, um, she, you know, I look, I was really excited about the tarot cards. It was like the best gift ever. And, um, but my father didn't know that they had been put in there. And it was like, you had like, just dropped a bomb in the house like it was like an explosion about them being sacrilegious and like you know like all of these things and but by that time I was already like a preteen and I had our I was starting to like have a better understanding about the sort of fucked up nature of like our family dynamic and um and also starting to rebel I like went through a huge rebellious phase and um pretty early and, um, you know, I stood up to him and was, I, I was like, thinking, like yelling back or I don't know what exactly. But, um, but what I realized was that, um, his fury at these, the, these cards and this like object, uh, was that they were a powerful object that he actually was afraid of them. Um, and so him being afraid of this spiritual object, um, gave it all that much more importance to me as like a sort of powerful um, tool of protection for myself and something that like became even more special. Um, so I started working with them like pretty much like every day. Um, and I'm really lucky that he didn't ultimately take them away. Um, but yeah, there was there was something about 
as there was something about his fury that like I could see through as like a young person to actually being fear. Um, so yeah, so that, I don't know, that's, that's like a, an example of how like the, the strange spirituality is like intertwined and then yeah, how I, what I, what I did with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I love that. Yeah. You, you mentioned that, um, um, kind of nothing straightforward, nothing's linear, and it's like hard to parse out all of these different influences. And mm-hmm. it just sounds like in your description of um, those early years that kind of like like your relationship with your mom is like very much like, like so much of what I'm hearing is the importance of family and the and the kind of figuring out of boundaries mm, between mm, self and mm, other and private and public mm, and mm, 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 you know sacred mm, sacrilegious mm, mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah and I'm kind of curious like within that you, you you also mentioned that the thread of queerness has been there throughout your life and yeah. I'm, I'm curious like when um when that emerged in a in, a, in like a, in a self-aware way or mm-hmm. when you kind of learns about the word queer the the word trans right 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 yeah yeah I was definitely like through like little stages I mean I would say that like um from the earliest of ages like other people were like identifying my queerness like in the sense of like non-normativeness um I have this really beautiful card that I love that's from my granddad from my mom my mom's dad um, and it's this, it's this amazing card that, um, he, my birthday's in June and, um, he, it, the, the card is a birthday card, but on the front of it is a picture of like a Santa Claus. Um, and, uh, it has, um, it written on the inside, it has like all of these different languages saying essentially Merry Christmas. Um, and he crossed out all of them except for um, he circled Felice Navidad because apparently that translates to like happy birth or that's exa- that's what he said it translated to in the card. Um, he was learning how to speak Spanish at the time. And, uh, and he said that he had gotten basically that in one card. So I have two identical cards that are both birthday cards that are this essentially a Christmas card that have Felice Navidad circled <laughs> on the inside. And it says, <laughs> I know, and it says the first one. <laughs> says it goes in it's like this like trailing very like very much his like stream of consciousness writing to like a nine-year-old <laughs> saying um that his basically my my aunt kathy um knew that buying greeting cards was among the things that he least liked doing so she brought him a lifetime supply of greeting of this and other <laughs> cards to address this and so he does this like meandering thing and he talks about how my like the the upcoming people in the families, their birthdays. He's like, your uncle Frank in Florida is going to get one at, at like, you know, in May. And you're, he like, he like, he like goes and talks about, or it's, it's like, all it's in like, your card. It's all in the card. It's like all <laughs> written in there. Um, and so that was when I was nine. And then, so he was very meandering. And then, and then the next year it's I, the identical card and it's, I have, I've just turned 10. And, um, in that card he wrote, um, I think the exact line was, uh, even though you march to a different drummer, you will always be loved, is what he said. So there was, like, something about, like, that 
even that moment that he, he, I don't know what he saw exactly, but like he saw that I was like a little bit of an odd kid. Like there was like something like a little bit, he wouldn't have used the word queer, I don't think, but like something just like non-normative and that, that like, and I, so I keep both of those cards because there are these, and actually the, the one when I, when he was, when I was 10, he died that same year. So that was like the last like little gift that I have. So those are like cards that I use and I put them on my altar. So that's like a memory that I have of like an adult sort of like seeing my queerness and like he said it in his own way um, and he was very like like supportive of it. Um, I think that the ways that like other people would reflect it back to me was that like they'd be like, oh, you're so creative or you're very like art. Like I was like, I like to draw. I like to, I had like my own like sort of like inner world that was like very ornate which I think had somewhat to do with like coping mechanisms around trauma like you know like things like sort of like ways to escape into an imaginary world um was something that was a really important coping mechanism for me Um, but I think that for other people sort of um brought about this like difference you know that they could like see of just me sort of like going into these like imaginative spaces um in terms of like desire and like um sexuality I mean I definitely like I have like funny memories of like having crushes on like other girls like in my class like from like a really young age and I remember the uh yeah from I think the earliest I remember is maybe like when I was like seven I think there was a girl in my class that I now understand I was like oh I was really crushing on this girl hard (laughs) um so that was cute to remember um but uh but my first actual moment of fuck I'm queer and therefore well okay there's a couple of things memories that come to mind like I'm queer and queer in my very conservative household equals bad. Like, this is not okay. This is not good. Um, There were two things um, that happened. One was, um, this was when I was really young. There was a neighbor boy that my father was walking around in... um, my dad in the summertime would wear like short shorts. It was like the 80s. It was like, it was, like short shorts and like s- like socks like up to his knees. Like, you know, you know what I cute. mean? Like, like it was very cute. Yeah, he was very, he was like pretty stylish. Um, but a little bit um, like there was something like kind of like effeminate about it, I think. Or it, at least it read that way. I now understand like to the neighbor boy next door and um, whose dad was like a cop or something. And the... And he said, he called my dad, he saw my dad doing yard work, um, and he called my dad a faggot, um, not to his face, but sort of like to his friends and like near me, and I heard it. And I didn't know what the term faggot meant. That was like the first time I had heard the word faggot. I think, I think, I mean, God, my this memory is so old, like I think I must have been maybe six, if I have to guess. Um, I hadn't heard that term, but I knew that he was speaking to something that was um at least this interpretation of it was that there was like a a non-normativity a a kind of queerness to my father and but also something that was um that was negative that was like bad um that had to do with like his like sexuality like I that and 
And the disturbing thing that came to my mind was as a six-year-old who was being abused by him, I because I didn't have the actual framework for like what a fag was or anything else was or whatever, I looked at him and I was like, oh yeah, he is a faggot. Like I was like, that's that's what that, I, like, some, um, like I made this like connection between, um, between queerness and um, abuse in that case for me and also like other people's like negative connotations of queerness and sort of all, all got kind of jumbled in and I was like oh he is a faggot and I also sort of like because of that like it also was like a reflection like on my body and like my I don't know how to describe that but it was like this very it's like this thing that feels really icky to kind of like piece apart now because like I feel like I work very hard to like sort of separate like queerness and faggotry from like sexual predatory you know ness or whatever but like that was very much what was being projected at that moment and that was like how I came to like understand um that and that was like yeah that's like a very early memory of like feeling something yeah projected onto my father's body and then internalizing that into my own body I guess if that makes sense as well and so and then the next memory that I have which was also a negative memory was that or it's like a complicated memory I was like I think I was I was 10 years old I was running for class president um in my school and um I had my first like dream like about like two women kiss, kissing like and I you know I, I don't know if like I if I saw you know you know that poster of like the black and white poster with the two sort of feminine women kissing it's like this like iconic mm-hmm. like les poster my dream my memory of my dream looks like that poster mm-hmm. I don't know if that would have been timing I don't know when that poster came out exactly or if I like, saw I it that, was that an act up for like a visual yeah aid, I like don't a... remember what yeah I don't remember what I know exactly the, the one that you're talking yes, about yes totally yeah. and so I don't know if I had somehow seen it somewhere and then it got into my dream or if it just somehow they replicated each other in some magical way. <laughs> um, but but, um, but that's my memory of that dream. Like my first sort of like sexually charged dream that felt like this kind of like sensuality and eroticism that had to do with like queerness in that like sense. Um, and I woke up from it and I was very disturbed because I knew like by that time it had already been like indoctrinated into me like through religion and things like that or whatever and also through like that boy who was like essentially like saying that you know Mm -hmm. being a faggot was like gross and wrong um that being like homosexual and having like any desire around that was bad and so I totally freaked out I started crying and I like remember like I crawled into my mom's bed in the middle of the night and she was like trying to console me and I just wouldn't she was asking me like what was the she knew I had a bad dream or something and she was a bitch, but I just wouldn't tell her what it was because I was just like had too much shame and like couldn't just couldn't bring myself to say it and so I created this like lie that I said that I was um I, th- I was th- some some lie that I made up that like to to get out of having to tell her the truth was like something about my feelings of like unworthiness about if I would do a good job as class president or something like that. It was like really sad. It's like sad to think back on it, but like I had, I had constructed this, this other story so as to not have to like reckon with telling her about this dream. And so it wasn't really until honestly, like it wasn't until I went to, um, I like sort of like had my like grand escape from Chicago, which was when I was 19. Um, 
uh, I was able to go to college in Roanoke, Virginia, um, and that was, and I haven't really looked back since I've been living up and down the East Coast um, since 2001, and, um, but it was through going to school, I went to like a, a liberal arts college called Hollins University, um, which is like a, they consider themselves like a very small women's college, um, they're actually undergoing like a reconstruction of their like trans policy at this very moment. Um, but I went there um, as, as a student, it's like a very small college that um, does have like a pretty, like especially for being a small women's college in the South has like a pretty radical background in terms of like um, since like, you know, 1842, it's like been teaching like women's science and things like that. And so, um, and has like, yeah, various, various things about it that were really great and so learned about gender and sexuality there and then was kind of like oh wait I'm all these things <laughs> and you know what I mean like it basically like it really took like distance um and separation from the abuse that I was experiencing at home in Chicago with my family um until my teens and um and yeah took took me getting away from all that and then like getting um access to other sorts of people who had all kinds of like amazing things to share with me <laughs> through um you know reading and um kissing and you know all the <laughs> you know just like all the fun things that you uh -huh. do when you're in college I guess um and reading and kissing reading and kissing <laughs> and um you know watching the L word that was like when the L word had just come out it was a big deal um, also queer as folk was, was out and we would like have like regular gatherings of like watching all of that. You know, I took like my first like gender studies classes, you know, all those kinds of things, um, really like opened up my world in like a lot of ways. And, um, and that, but I think also just like having like the first time of like having like what felt like a real safe space. Um, I would say that like Roanoke, Virginia very much like feels like in certain ways like my first home like even though I grew up in Chicago and spent 19 years of my life there like because of the the abuse that I experienced I don't consider Chicago to be like a home at all. It's like a, a place that I was raised and have a lot of trauma <laughs> um, but uh, but in terms of like a safe space it feels like Roanoke was the first place that I landed that I was able to like do a lot of healing. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to um, hear more about, yeah, Holland and your experience being at a liberal arts college from, like, a working class family, mm -hmm. and, and I guess I'm um, kind of curious about the, um, yeah, you're kind of, you're saying that in, in the year 2019, they're coming up with a policy for trans folks right. as, like, a non-binary and um, androgynous person kind of what that experience was like for you but mm -hmm. bef before we kind of get there I, I guess I just have one more kind of question about family and tradition and lineage mm -hmm. um like when your mom gave you the the tarot cards when you were 12 um was there this kind of like I I'm gonna teach you how mm -hmm. to use these mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. like was she was she conscious of or like kind of like trying to like pass on yeah, yeah. these these wisdoms totally. to you or yeah. kind of how did you when you said it, you were doing it um like using the cards every day like 
where did you learn how to do that? From? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that, um, so when she gave it to me, I think that she, for my mom, her own personal practices were more rooted in like this like dream work and like these sort of like just like speaking to ghosts, um, basically. Um, and she would sometimes look to she didn't have tarot cards herself she had these like angel cards that she used this sort of like oracle cards that i think had like angels on them and so sometimes she would like pull from those cards and, and do things with that um but in terms of like her actually um teaching me things specifically around them i would say that with the, with tarot in particular it did not come from my mom um she she knew that I would have that I had an interest and that like it would be something that I would that I was that I would be drawn to and like I think that she like opened a doorway for me to be able to um you know work with them um but she didn't again like because like things were like very much her kind of spirituality just was like not formalized like it was just it was just very much kind of like you 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 pick up what you can pick up just by listening to her like as she's sort of rambling <laughs> on and talking about different things um and because and in terms of tarot tarot was not so explicitly about like a regular part of my mom's own practice but it was a part of my cousin sarah's practice and sarah lived with me and my family during that time um she also is a survivor of abuse in her household um ironically she was like sent to my household to sort of like try to heal from that without people being i don't know I don't know what people were thinking. It was a very bad idea for her to be sent to like another household where essentially the same abuse was going on. Um, but she was 11 years older than me. Um, so uh, when I, when she came to live with us, like it was like at, at that very sort of like pinnacle turning point, um, I would say she was with us maybe between I was, she moved in when I was nine or 10. And then I think she left when I was 13. Um, so it was like several years that she lived with us um but you know so if i was that that age like you know like she was like in her like early 20s you know and so she was like this like person that i very much looked up to and tara was very much a part of her practice and so um she, i would sit in her bedroom or um or she would come into my bedroom and we would like work with the cards together um in that way and so that was like very much like a bonding time that I had with my cousin and that was my cousin on my mother's side um uh so yeah yeah um and I I let go my mom uh my mom because she has epilepsy and she had really severe epilepsy she ended up having brain surgery um when I was I guess when I was 19 yeah I was like 18 19 uh, because, uh, she was in a very dire state, um, and was having like what they call like static epilepticus, which is like rolling seizures and they couldn't control them. And she would have died had they not done this brain surgery. Um, and she also, and after the brain surgery, she, um, you know, they had, they had removed part of her hippocampus and part of her um, right temporal lobe where the seizures were occurring. And um, she had all kinds of um, difficulties uh, because it's really, it's like an experimental procedure. They don't tell you that it's an experimental procedure, but it was. And um, she was delusional and um, unfortunately, like all the things that were um, 
at one time sort of like these things that she was really felt grounded in in terms of like her like spirituality and like her like sense of reality um really got warped um as her brain was healing from the surgery and she was hallucinating and like it just became um not it was it was not it was it was not healthy anymore um and so she unfortunately during that time she like got like do you remember like I forget, it was like Miss Chloe or something. It was like this, it was like, it was like this, like, uh, uh, Cleo, Cleo, Cleo. Thank you. Yeah. Miss Cleo. So those like, those like infomercials, you know, Mm -hmm. and that would read the tarot or whatever. So my mother, as she was healing from brain surgery, she got herself into some serious debt with Miss Cleo, with Miss, like making these calls to Miss Cleo or whatever, because she like would just like give the credit card or whatever. And then like, because nobody was it was just a big mess that she was she wasn't getting the care that she needed um for a lot of reasons um as she was healing from her brain surgery and she so then when we found out that she had spent like all this money on fucking miss cleo this like scam uh i really was horrified and like really removed myself from like anything to do with like magic anything to do with like all these things that i had been like raised up with um I was very bitter about and like sort of like cut off my connection to for like a good number of years actually during college like it was like during those like college years I was like very much like about my studies and like practical things and like needing to be kind of like really grounded and like not looking to magical practices um at all it was very like hurt by all of that um then like as my mom healed and then and various things happened um my cousin who i mentioned who taught me the about tarot um she died um and uh she was um an addict and she yeah she was in and out of rehabs and she um was really on and off the streets fairly regularly and um the circumstances around her death are still very much unknown um but i got a call while i was actually while i was in school actually Um, to say that Sarah's body had been found, um, and, uh, and so that was just, like, a big, uh, just deep, deep wound, um, and trauma that had hit, and I realized that, um, even though I was living on the East Coast at that time, I basically had, like, and actually I still do in this, in this very apartment, I have, um, carted around with me, um, the furniture that was in Sarah's bedroom when, when she lived with us, like it became my furniture. Like it was like, um, when she left, um, it was sort of like I, all the things that, um, I, I admired, um, about her. I, and when she, when she left our house, they were the things that sort of became my little like treasures and the things that I carried around. So when she died, I looked around my apartment and I realized that my whole apartment was like, almost like it was like, a lot of Sarah's stuff um, that she had left behind when she left her house and um, including the tarot cards and so um, eventually it was when I when I graduated from college and I um, moved to Philadelphia uh, I was that was really I mean it was like five year it's because of the trauma around surrounding Sarah's death and like the unknowns and like the violence around it um, it took me a lot longer to like grieve her death um uh I I think I put it somewhere for a number of years like sort of like compartmentalized it um and wasn't able to fully be with it um 
until it sort of like hit me. I felt I felt I felt like it was like on like the five year anniversary. Like all of a sudden, I was just like slammed with my grief, and um, and then I, that's when I pulled out my tarot cards again and I started working with them. And it felt like this way to feel connected to Sarah. And so I because it was something that I very much did with her. And so it was something about. And by that time, my mom had done more of her own healing in terms of her own brain trauma. And um, and I began, began to understand that even though this Miss Cleo thing really took advantage of my mom and, um, and, and, sh- and she really got herself into a bad way with it, I realized that everything and every quote-unquote like delusion, everything that my mom did during that time was still in an effort to heal herself. You know what I mean? Like it was like she didn't have the resources and the tools and the, and, um, this really any kind of support, um, to be able to do it. Um, and so her, her effort to call the scam artist, um, you know, was an effort for her to heal herself. And so I, I understand that more now and I don't have like bitterness like around it. And I, I know that there are just like with everything, there are people who do this work in a legitimate way that, um, that has um, that is rooted in something, and then there's others who take advantage of people, and that's just like literally everything in life. So I've kind of, I've come to terms with it um, in that way. But that was like a really long tangent from what your original question was. I don't fully even remember what the original question was, but um, I think it was something to do with like my mom teaching me tarot or something. Um, but yeah, that's my history with I suppose my sort of like meandering history with tarot and how I moved away from it, came back to it, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm struck kind of, again, by this, like, like thinking about this deck of tarot cards. Mm-hmm. That, like, um, yeah, that was this, kind of sounds like an intuitive gift from mm-hmm. your mom. Like, it wasn't out of her practice. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. just like, I think you might yeah. be interested right, in right, kind of the right. stories of, yeah, your your experience with your dad with that, and mm-hmm, then Sarah, mm-hmm. and this kind of like leaving home, leaving the practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, just mm-hmm. thinking about all of the different things that are kind of infused and like yeah, entangled in them. Yeah, totally. There, I still have that same deck of cards, and they're the only ones that I use. And so I've had them for I don't know, I'm thirty six now. So however many years that is, but um, yeah, they they have a lot of energy. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So what did you, so kind of when you were at Holland's, um, Mm -hmm. you said that you were like really studious and really interested Mm -hmm. in like practical, Mm -hmm. um, like what, um, what kinds of things did you um, focus on or what kinds of Mm -hmm. things? Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) besides kissing and reading, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it was so, it was, um, so it was a um, a liberal arts college, and you know I got the way that I got to Holland's was like a fluke. I mean, I I was not a good student in 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 like grade school and high school and stuff like that or whatever. I really struggled in school, and nobody anticipated that I would ever do anything. It was like a miracle that I graduated from high school, um, and uh, I how I got to Holland's was um, uh, so. 
with the abuse that was going on in my household at this time, it hit like a pitch when I was like 16, when my mom's seizures got really bad and the, and my, my mom was trying to get a divorce from my father at that point, um, and which of course made things much more hard at home. Um, basically, Chicago has this really fucked up law. I don't know if it's still in the way that, the way that it was then, but at least then it was basically like... Um, if you owned property together, which my parents had, you know, their house um, that they owned together, well, they had like a mortgage, it was actually going up for, for about to go up for foreclosure because they were really struggling um, financially at that time because of my mom's illness and whatnot. Um, but uh, there was this fucked up law that basically was like, um, if you get a divorce and without like agreement with like in mediation, whoever like leaves the premises first, like whoever who leaves the property first gives up their rights to the property is that was this law. So essentially, um, it functioned to keep them both living in the house, even while they were trying to get this divorce because they couldn't, neither of them could afford to just like give up their rights to the property. Um, and so, so basically it like keeps like domestic abuse happening for like much longer. It was like this like terrible, horrible pressure cooker of an environment. Um, and so things hit a really intense pitch and my mom, um, Basically, she encouraged me to um, leave the house when I was 16. Like, she was, like, trying to figure out a way to protect me. And um, so when I was 16, I moved out of the house. I had a... From a previous injury, I had gotten this, like, little bit of, like, insurance money from this time when I broke my leg when I was four that had, my parents had put in a CD for me that my mom took me to the bank and we broke it so that I could buy a car. And so basically the plan was was that the car would get me to and from work and to school when I needed to go and then I like, would be able to, like, get me to and from, like, friends' houses that she thought I would be, like, couch hopping on. And, um... I don't think that she fully realized how much I would actually be sleeping in the car because that was like more often what I did. Like I wasn't always able to like stay at a friend's house or a, a boyfriend's house at that time too. And um, this woman that um, I, I shockingly like throughout all of this, I was still somehow able to take dance classes. Like I was like still, I was the thing that had been consistent throughout my whole life is that I had been able to take dance classes because my mom did some volunteer work at a local dance studio in order to like augment the price of classes. And it was like something that like I was that like I did throughout like my whole life. And like when I was working, I would like also like pay toward my own classes and things like that. Um, and so this woman whose daughter was in the dance classes with me learned about what was going on at home and learned that I essentially wasn't living at home and these things. And she was like a born again Baptist Christian and she took it upon herself and was like, oh, you're going to come live with me. So basically like when between like 16 and the time like I graduated school, I was like hopping around a bunch of places, but I lived with this woman for like this was, I guess, towards the end. Like, I was very close to graduating at this point, so I guess I would have been, like, all, like 17, 18 or something like that. And she, um, she took me into her home. I got my own bedroom. I got my own bath. It was, like, very – she was very rich, and she – I had all my needs met, and the one caveat was that I just had to come to church with her every 
Sunday and go to her like Baptist church and she would tell me to like give my troubles to God and I was like God sounds great like you know like it was, I was like it was like you're giving me money huh. for tolls I mean it was like you know like she, I was you know she was like she was like mm-hmm. catering to all of my needs after I'd essentially been you know a homeless teen for like a number of months at that point mm-hmm. and um she uh so she, she was like you know God is good. And I was like, God is good. Like, you know, like this sounds good. Um, like a really different God than the Greek Orthodox yes, God. Yes, very different. Yes, mm-hmm. very different. Super different. And for and the Greek Orthodox God was never one that I really fully believed in because of my fa- my relationship to my father and the way that I saw him performing within that role and that, you know what I mean? So it was like not one that I really bought into at any point. Um, but this God, for a period of time, I did. And... Um, she, uh, so, but she's the woman who got me to go to college because basically her daughter was the same age as me and there was like no question that her daughter was going to college, you know, so like they were like visiting schools together, blah, blah, blah. So she like got this like Princeton review, this like big thick book and was like, here, cross-reference your interests. So I look through and I'm looking at all my interests or whatever. And unbeknownst to me, I applied to like all liberal arts. I didn't even know what a liberal arts college was, um, but that's where my interests were um, in the arts. And so I, so she helped me apply. I applied to five different schools. They were all out of state. She helped me fill out my FAFSA and things like that. But she basically like got me to go to college. Um, I ended up visiting two of the I think I got into three of the schools and I ended up visiting like two of the three that I got into and one of them was Hollins in Roanoke and then the other one was this other one that was in North Carolina I don't even remember the name of it um but my mom and I we got on a Greyhound bus from Chicago and went down to Roanoke Virginia and she was able to visit those two schools with me right before she had her brain surgery and uh Yeah, and Hollins was the one that was able to basically give me, I got, like, the Pell Grant, and I got, like, at that time, like, I had been living on my own enough, and, like, this, this woman, unfortunately, like, she housed me in her house until it was convenient, basically, it was, like, when her relatives needed to come for Christmas, then it was kind of, like, time for me to go, so, like, I was there with her for, like, a chunk of time, and then she had, like, her husband essentially sort of was, like, okay, it's time to, like, say goodbye, so then I was, like, back out on the street again, um, so it was like very still back and forth while I was like planning on going to college. And then, um, but then, yeah, they, gave, they were able to give me, I got a certain amount of scholarship and I was able to get like a certain number of like grants and then loans. And because um, by that time I was already estranged from my father and my mom was not working at all and was like very disabled about to have brain surgery and basically I was able to go into Hollands as an independent like I didn't have um you know most people have like people who are mm-hmm. but my mom was basically able to like sign and affirm that like nobody had been like at that point like like really consistently financially supporting me and so that's how I was able to attend um the woman who had housed me, helped me become a Christian, a certain kind of Christian for a time. Uh, She felt really guilty for having to, like, I don't think she wanted to ask me to leave her house. I think that was really, like, her husband's choice. So she, I think, in some ways, like, overcompensated for it by, like, um, I think that she's the one who bought my plane ticket to go back down to Holland's when it was, like, time for me to, like, start school there. Um, She also, like, took me to, like, 
Bed Bath and Beyond with her daughter to like buy all my linens, like you know, to like ha- like like for my dorm and things like that. Um, and she she did all of that for me. Um, and my mom had had her brain surgery three days before I got on the plane to go to school, mm-hmm. so she drove me to um, the hospital where I visited my mom. She was completely out of it. Um, I was there for just to like say goodbye. She couldn't, she wouldn't, wasn't able to really communicate with me at all. Um, and then, uh, and then she brought me, uh, to the airport, put me on the flight. And after giving me all of that, after like, sort of like housing me, getting me to go to, like, she like really, it's a strange thing. I have this very fraught relationship in remembering her because she really changed the whole course of my life. She gave me this like incredible out. Um, and, and financial assistance, like, at, at that time. And, uh, but after giving me all of that, the, the thing that was actually, like, her gift to me as I was, like, getting on the plane, as I was boarding the plane, was my first uh, Bible. And so she sent me on the plane with the Bible and then went down to Holland's. And then I was there at Holland's, and I was, like, this, like, identifying as this sort of, like, born-again Christian girl... Um, and, but I didn't really have like a, that sort of Christian education, but strangely that it's like going to the South specifically, that's all there. You were surrounded by a lot of those type of people. And so, um, I was in, yeah, in, in good company in that way, I guess, or I was in, it's in the Bible belt. And, um, so I, for the first like six months that I was at Holland's, um, it was interesting because when I look back at like how I engaged with the Bible that she gave me, it's like was like a very like witchy practice, like because um, I didn't, I never really read the Bible before or anything like that. But um, what I would do is I would treat it almost like a tarot deck. I would like basically be like, "What does Jesus want me to know today?" And I would like <laughs> open the book and see where it fell. You know what I mean? It was kind of like pulling a tarot card. It was kind of like, "Where is it?" And you know, and then I would, and then I would see where my eyes would fall. And then that was the scripture that I would read for that day. But it was, like, very, like, a very witchy thing of, like, you know, what is the messages from the gods or whatever. Um, and that's how I started at Holland's. But then this woman, um, she really, uh, I became disillusioned with her and with, like, her religious practice because, um, honestly, like, because, like, a lot to do with, like, her sort of, like, ableism, like, around my mom. Like, my mom was really very sick and people just, like, didn't, they just thought she was, like, being lazy. Like, they, like, didn't think... I don't know. Like, that she, like, wasn't healing fast enough. Like, it was, like, you know, and I was far away. I couldn't get... You know, this woman gave me a flight to get out of there, but I couldn't get back to go visit my mom. Like, I had no way, really, of getting back there. Um, I had to get some emergency funds from the college to visit once when my mom was, like, in an emergency to, to go and to be there with her, um, which I was thankfully able to have. But yeah, it was this weird thing, like, I mean, it was definitely, like, that very much that sort of, like, savior complex of, like, somebody who kind of, like, swoops in, Mm -hmm. but then doesn't, um, doesn't really follow up in a good way. Um, and so, yeah, I became disillusioned with, with her for a lot of reasons, and then I was also taking these, like, kind of, like, funky, like, classes that, like, were, you know, I think it started, like, relatively, um, I took things that, like, I think I took, like, a a class on the New Testament, actually. Like, I, I took a class because I was, you know, I, I was Christian. You know, this, this was what I was doing. 
but the but the chaplain at, at Holland's was this like radical chaplain who um, you know talked about queerness and homosexuality like in in like uh, radical ways in relationship to the Bible and like you know like and, and like was giving us that framework in that class and that's not what not what I expected to learn in that class at all but I was super ready for it and open to it and so that was sort of happening at the same time as I was becoming disillusioned with the sort of spirituality and the what felt like these like deep this deeply flawed spirituality that um felt kind of hypocritical um from this woman that had ultimately yeah really changed the course of my life um so I moved further and further away from I think I really only ended up identifying as like a, a Christian in that way for maybe like six months or something like that of my time at Holland's and then ultimately was coming into a queer identity and a different kind of identity after that point. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but very much while I was at Holland's, like in terms of like transness, like, um, so I, I did not come out as being like non-binary or into like a trans identity actually until after I graduated. Um, I, I feel like Holland's has like this, like, I mean, as a lot of women's colleges do this very like strong, like, you know, like women, like that very, in certain ways, like second wave feminism sort of connection to, um, womanhood, um, and, um, womanness. Uh, and, um, so, you know, but I was taking some gender studies classes and they, and they were like teaching me some more radical things like around gender, but I just didn't have any examples like of like what a trans person looks like is like, you know, like I just, it was like, it was like, I was learning some of these things, but, and, but didn't, didn't have, um, something to mirror back an experience to me, you know what I mean? And so while I was there, I was still very much like, you know, woman identified and whatnot, um, which I feel like had its place at that time. And, um, my best friend, um, he was, I mean, as far as we know, anyway, the first like out trans person to graduate from Holland's, um, when we were in the same year and um but Holland's has this really messed up um policy that thankfully they're changing um in large part thanks to my friend who's on this like committee right now um that basically their their policy is that um it's actually different than um some of the other policies like Smith and the places or whatever that had their anti-trans policies that Holland's the way that Holland's is manifested is that um so basically, technically, trans women um, are and have been allowed to be um, admitted into Hollands, um, but you, as a trans woman, would have had to have gone through the full like medical procedure to like go through like feminization, whatever, like just like you know all of that gender affirmation surgery but they but in holland's mind it's like very much that like gender reassignment you know it's like mm-hmm. that it's like in this mode of like now you are a woman because you have these physical features mm-hmm. and you've done and taken legal and medical steps to like become a woman only after that point are you allowed to be admitted into this mm-hmm. program or whatever that's like, which like what 18 year old yeah no exactly so if so so effectively and that would have been like around the year 
2000. Yeah, it's like 2001. I was there from 2001 to 2006. So, um, yeah. And so, and and that remains the policy up until right now. They, like, stuck to this policy. And so it's, like, effectively, of course, there's no trans women there because who can do that at, you know, yeah. So, and, um, so that was the, the policy for trans women. And then for trans men... Um, or anyone who is non-binary and decides to under... Basically, it was like, you can identify in any way that you want once you're here, in a sense, but you cannot do anything to your body or to your legal... Like, you can't change... You can't do any take any legal steps or medical steps to alter your um, physical appearance um, or, like, change your name legally or things like that. Um, and if you do, you'll be kicked out. And so that was the the policy, and had remained the policy until now. I hope they're they're very close to I think changing it at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was one other trans guy that was there when I was there as well, and he did start hormones, and he did and ultimately leave, and was like very much like sort of like felt I, I could you could tell that there was this like I didn't actually know him very well, but like you could feel this like ostracization, like you know, like the of, of of that his experience and my friend who is trans guy he just he waited it out like basically like he like um he didn't undergo any kind of um you know uh gender affirmation um procedures and things like that until uh after he graduated and didn't like take the legal steps to change his names and things like that so he was able to ultimately like stay um, but it was like under those terms. Um, so yeah, so now we're, it's yeah, 2019 and they're just now finally have this whole committee together and I've been in communication with like some of the current students. There's like this like whole kind of like underground, like kind of like trans kind of secret trans community at Holland's, um, because everyone's like afraid of potentially being kicked out. Um, so they're kind of all feeling as if they have to be in the closet. Um, and so there's like, unfortunately there's like this like huge culture of, of fear that exists there, um, now. And so hopefully whatever changes they make to the policy will, will be trans inclusive and, um, help to alleviate that culture of fear that's been like increasingly instilled, um, yeah, but um, as far as I know, it was like our generation anyway. It was like it was like my friend was like yeah he was like the first, the first um, trans student to like graduate from Holland's and be out in the sense that we were all using you know his name um, and you know his pronouns and things like that like in in, in that sense. But like he just couldn't do it like legally or physically. Um, and it's only, I mean, I think, like, in the year since, like, like visibility and people, you know, being able to, like, name these things for ourselves and come out as trans, I think, is, like, only, it seems to be, like, more and more, like, it's, like, sort of, like, more in, in like, um, I don't know. Yeah, there's just, it seems like it's, it, the, the, the students that exist there now, like, the number of students who are trans, even though it's this underground network, it seems like it's, like, it's many more than were there at the time that I was there. And I wasn't even identifying as trans either, because, like, even though I had my friend who was coming out as trans himself, then he's very much, like, identifies as, like, a, a trans man, and, like, um, and, and is very, um, 
yeah, he he now that he's on hormones and things like that, it like very much like passes and it's like, you know, that's that was his track. Um, I didn't come into my own identity because there was no, like I said, there was no examples of it. Like it was just like, I feel like I've always felt, yeah, like I think I can I can track now like the ways in which like, cisness was not really actually ever a part of my like, uh, embodied experience but um I just didn't have examples of what was possible um until I moved until I graduated from college and I moved to Philadelphia and there was like a big trans community in Philly um and so I saw all these different examples like within the queer community of like different um gender expressions different gender identities that's when I got introduced to using they and them pronouns and so it gave me a route um, toward being able to um, step into an identity that felt more like myself. Mm. Um, I'm curious, like, at, um, so you moved to, to Philly and you have this, like, long history of, of both, like, um, kind of like homelessness or like living in your car and having mm-hmm. this financial assistance and mm-hmm. wanting to be really practical um and then also these like interests in like the liberal arts and yeah 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 oh and yeah, yeah. How, did curious, that, yeah. Like, how did that get reckoned with yeah how <laughs> what um yeah how did you then as like or how have you I guess since graduating which I yeah. know is is now 15 years yeah, ago yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like right, that right 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 um kind of how you've merged um or yeah figured out how to sustain yourself yeah um financially spiritually creatively kind of as a trans person Mm -hmm. as a creative person as a healer yeah yeah yeah, totally i mean yeah i mean it's interesting because like uh yeah like being a part in like a, a working class family um, and not being expected to go to college and then going to what I now understand to be a liberal arts college and like essentially studying in the arts or whatever it's like very strange like it's like you know like there it's not like I I, I don't have like a, a trade or like a vocation you know like I mean I, I very much like was like sort of like doing kind of similar like all kinds of odd jobs and like nannying work and like all kinds of stuff to, to get myself through school like was I was like working I was all, working almost full time at, at the same time as being like a double major throughout school I was like just really it took me actually a, an extra I was there for five years instead of four because it took me an extra year to finish because of all of that like hustling that I was having to do to just get through it um and uh but interestingly enough my mom, I think that there's, like, a certain sect of, like, folks that, I don't know, like, my mom never had, like, the, I think that there's, like, a stereotype of, like, working class people, like, being, like, only sort of, like, pragmatic, like, in terms of, like, you know, um, what's valuable work. Um, and my mom was, like, super always a dreamer. Like, she, like, she really, with my, with my, um artistic side like she thought she thought that I was gonna be I'm actually my my um my name my birth name that I was given I was named after um 
my mom only read romance novels and um so I feel like it's like this like connection to like my kind of like trashy history but I was like I was named after like a famous like romance novel author um which I really like in certain ways um but uh but but she named me after this like sort of trashy romance novel author but that but somebody that she really held in high esteem as like somebody who had like made it you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so in her mind and because i actually did end up like liking to write and i also like to draw she thought i was going to become like the next like jk rowling like it was like you know like she was it was like in like she was like oh you're on this like you're gonna That's make amazing. it it's like it's it's kind of like in, in like a way of like sort of like how certain fantasies can be made up around like families believing that their kid is going to become like a sports star or like whatever like for my mom it was like I was gonna I was gonna be this like you know children's book author or whatever was like what she imagined I would become and so that was like always sort of like instilled in me actually from like a pretty I mean I that was the name I was given so it was like from a pretty young age um and so when I went to Holland's um Holland's is really well known the two things that they're well known for um is their creative writing program actually like they have like a lot of um published writers um and that comp came out of their writing program and um like the person who wrote like they're like one one of their there's, there's a few people claims to fame that you know every institution has or whatever but like one of them is the the person who wrote goodnight moon mm. uh is, went to hollands um so so nice. yeah so okay so um so there's that and um other writers like Annie Dillard and the, just other people that went to Holland's that became well-known writers. Um, and so they had this strong writing program and that's what I had been sort of like funneled from my mom to like think that that's like how I could make it. And because no one in my family had been to college, like in that mentality, it was basically like, it kind of didn't matter like what you studied. It was kind of like, whoa, well, once you've gone to college, like you've made it, like you've like, mm-hmm. you're going to get a job. Like, you know, like it's like, you basically, it was like, my mom taught me that there were like three ways of essentially like, you know, getting out of, you know, poverty, essentially. It was like to the idea of like pulling up your bootstraps, like is the main one. And then the next one is like education, like get an education to get out or marry up like it was like those were the three things that were like instilled in me from a pretty young age and so just going to college at all it didn't we didn't know didn't know what a liberal arts college was and because my mom already had this sort of like fantasy or whatever she was kind of like oh once you go to college like yeah that's your ticket that's how you're going to become jk rowling like you know like it was like that's what it was going to be um and so i and for me i was like i also thought i was like very um i was like you know uh, the two, I was a double major and the, but the, the two majors that I chose was the creative writing department and the dance department, because those were the two majors, um, at Holland's that they were fairly like well known for, like, like they had very strong departments in both. Um, and it was also like two of my interests that, um, I had had since I was young. So, um, but I thought that I was being very smart. Like I was, I was like, oh, these are the strongest departments that like are, are really well known. People are successful in these departments here. These these famous people that end up becoming dance artists and blah blah blah. Um, I thought I was being really smart, and um, I didn't realize it's like you're this like strange bubble. I didn't. I don't think I fully realized how different I was from a lot of my peers. Like I could tell that I was different in certain ways, like like having to work full-time and having to live off campus and various things um but uh but it wasn't until actually really that I graduated that I realized like oh shit like 
some of these people don't even have any loans. Like some of these people like just had their college paid for or like had or had a family to go back home to. I mean, that was like a, a primary thing that I had to like, mm-hmm. I had to like appeal to campus to let me live off campus because we, we were as a live in campus. I did live in the dorms for like the first year, but then every time that the dorms closed, um, you had to get off campus. You weren't allowed to stay there, which functionally meant that I would either be living in my car again or having to like couch hop with people that were nearby because I had literally had no place else to go. So I had to appeal to the um, dean um, to let them know what my family situation was and that that was what was essentially happening every time they closed down campus. I had no home. Uh, So that was what allowed me to eventually live off campus. Um, But yeah, I mean, I was like under this like weird um seductive idea that I think was like sort of like carried up in my mom's own like imagination of like what it means to like make it big like this like idea of like an American dream and like sort of like education being like the ticket and then when I graduated it was like this like really steep like steep mountain climb up and also like fall down I would say um in realizing that like yeah again I still like a lot of my friends even if they weren't necessarily getting like direct monetary support from their families um they could go they didn't have to rent an apartment they could go and live at home for a few months when money was tight or they were between jobs and I still I've never had that so um yeah so that was a really rude um, awakening as to the ways in which I was always pretty fundamentally different from most of the people that I went to college with. And um, I think and in terms of like being in the dance field in particular, because that was really more what I started, what I moved toward more so than writing as it turns out. And I think that there was like something about like the conversation about like the ways that like being a starving artist was like romanticized like in the dance field and like in my department that like it was strange because like it was like I now can like identify it as being like a kind of like romanticization of this idea of a starving artist or whatever and that like actually the people most of the people who are dance artists like do have some sort of like family money that has allowed them to like take this like you know whatever like (laughs) non-lucrative course and career um at that time I actually the thing that I was being attracted to with it was that I was like oh like this form of struggle actually feels pretty familiar to me like it was like it was like you know like just like making it work like hustling to make it work um and within dance communities in particular there's like a lot of like talk about community and like about like sort of like dancers like coming together to like support which is true to a point um but this 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 res this kind of this like resonated for me but not because i was sort of romanticizing the idea of um of it it was because i had had the experience of living out of my car and had these like things like this things like around hustling and i was kind of like oh yeah that's like that's like what you do but i didn't really fully realize i just like wasn't i wish that i had had like advisors or like people like teachers that knew how to advise a student who literally did not have the like the thing to fall back on the way that most other students did because I I wish I had I do wish I had somebody telling me like you actually do need to have some kind of like a money-making vocation you know what I mean that's like not you know like dance is not going to be the thing that makes the money 
<laughs> like, you know, I wish I had had that advice because I actually didn't. Um, and uh, not in like a real way anyway, you know what I mean? Like that, that was like sort of like, but actually, how are you going to pay your rent? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what ended up happening was, um, yeah, I was like working a million jobs of all different sorts. They ranged from work being a projectionist in a movie theater to like, you know, serving popcorn in a movie theater to like working in retail to like doing nanny work that my mom do and also had, I'd done my whole life in some ways like alongside my mom. <laughs> does she what does she She might want to come up, yeah. Yeah, can I lift you up? Rena. Can I lift you up Rena? <laughs> <Yeah>. Hi. <laughs> Rena is Yell's um very sweet senior cat. Yes. Just joined us on the couch. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad that she's here. <laughs> um, is that is that kind of in this period of hustling? Is that when you were going between Philly and New York City? That's definitely was a part of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say like pretty much like yeah from the from the moment that I that I graduated, I would say all the way until several years into living in New York um, was yeah this period of hustling. Which yeah, and it's like I I. When I ultimately, I, like I said, I moved to New York because I was um, actually getting more work here. So I was like um, able to sustain. It was strange because I, I lived in Philly because I was like, oh, Philly's rent is so cheap. But um, I couldn't afford to pay my rent because there was no work in Philly at that time. It was really, it was like they were, it was a really um, economically like depressed time in Philly. And um, so I was going up to New York City because I had, that's where I had a lot of my dance community. And so I was getting actually a lot of like the dance related jobs, like the jobs that I actually wanted to be doing were happening more in New York um, because I did have this like sort of community support here. And so I was commuting, um, at that time I was dancing for somebody who was paying for my commute. Like they would like pay for my mega bus tickets or whatever back and forth as well as paying me an hourly rate to, to perform for them. And um, so I, yeah, and so that's like what ultimately brought me here. But then when I moved to New York, I basically was able to save up just enough money to get myself to get here and put a down payment on uh, an apartment um, in terms of like um, first month's last and security kind of thing. And um, moved here with my partner of that time and we were both dance artists. And um uh, but shortly after was like not able to make the rent here either and um, was like facing eviction and like um, really struggling to like make it work. Um, I ended up having to like do sex work um, to get myself out of that situation, like to basically make like a bunch of like lump sum of money um, that would allow me to yeah, just figure out my housing situation. But I, again, was back into a situation of having housing instability um, and, uh, you know, ended up having to, you know, do a little bit of couch hopping at that time as well um, while housing stuff was figuring itself out. Um, I think that ultimately, like, what ended up leveling itself out, like, did come back to community again. Um, Like... Here I did have like a more robust community than I had had, I would say, in Philly and in other places that I had lived on the East Coast. Um, and so I didn't, yeah. So like people people were looking out for me in the sense of like trying to help me find work, like, you know, like giving me referrals to various things, like letting me, you know, crash on their couch or um, for a time. 
Um, but also, and I hate to say it, but like the, the way that I think I ultimately got out of it was this thing of, um, that my mom predicted was this like marrying up thing, which is basically that my partner who I now am with, um, comes from a very different class background than I do. And is like, you know, like upper middle class and, um, they, had financial resources and support and um when I you know when we got together and I was really struggling they have helped out significantly in being able to um you know figure it out you know um like sometimes with like rent situations or whatever in the past they also like um basically like when we were like really committed to each other I did end up landing like I got like a my most stable job that I had had um in New York that I finally figured out was like teaching in like after school programs. I was like teaching um, dance to kids in various after school programs. Um, and I, that was great because that offered me health insurance. Like that was like my first like thing that like really like I was, it was that, that was really like very supportive. And like once I landed that gig, that was amazing. Um, and I was there for several years. Um, and that gave me like a bit more support, but what, what was the name of that program? The, the name of the program was the Coalition for Hispanic Family Services. Was this the name of the sort of larger organization, like the parent organization? And I worked for the Arts and Literacy Program, which is like an after-school program um, that is basically offering like arts-based education to um, family, like low-income families, mostly in Queens and Brooklyn. Um, so yeah, so I was I was teaching there for like a few years, and that really gave me like a lot of like a more financial stability like on my own two feet than I had had in like a while especially because of the component of having health insurance which I hadn't never had access to prior to prior to that um and then um but then like I kind of felt like I had really like hit what felt like sort of like a plateau in terms of like my own like sense of like I don't know just like growth in the work that I was doing and like feeling like really like inspired by that it's, it's like been like important I got maybe it's because I've inherited my mom's like dreaminess of like wanting to be sort of like just like inspired by the work that I do and feel really connected to it but I I felt like I had hit this plateau in terms of um that work and um by being with my partner it allowed me basically we talked about it and they were like you know I, I want you to they had they went to law so they were in law school when we met and um like they were like you know had had every educational opportunity that they had ever that they that they had ever wanted kind of thing and they were like you know like I want there you know at that time like I had like hindsight it was then 2020 and I was like actually I really do wish like I do want to be a working artist but I do wish I had some kind of vocation or some sort of like something that felt like this sort of like this trade or like something like that or whatever that like could really like support my work as an artist um uh, and, and also, but also feel like nourishing in, in all the ways, um, spiritually and emotionally and intellectually. And, um, that's when I learned about end of life doula work. And I started to sort of do research around like what it meant to be an end of life doula and like the different training programs and the kinds of things that you would need to, to become an end of life doula. And, um, so after learning about like what, what the general training programs like that, that were out there were you know, talk to my partner about it. And they were like, you know, I want you to be able to have like the, you know, uh, this like educational opportunity or whatever. And like you to be able to like, 
study. So basically like for like about like a year and a half, like while I was in school, they were basically like my main source of like financial support um, that allowed me to then um, become a doula. And so now the way that I kind of have pieced it together in terms of like um, my my life and my work is that I have my doula work, which um, is like one arm um, of support and something that I very much love. And then my dance work, which like I still am performing and get paid to perform and make work as well as like teach. Um, so it's like still like this like educational component is like another sort of like source of income. And then, um, and then my tarot practice, which I, which I read, um, professionally now for people. Um, and, uh, that's like another sort of arm as well as I'm, I do stuff around herbalism and things like that. So I have like my little apothecary and that it, the apothecary sometimes it, it, it weaves itself well together with my doula practice. Cause sometimes I can offer, um, herbal support to people who are um, going through a grief process and things like that. So, um, and yeah, and it was during that time actually too, it was like that year I really took to study. I study, I like took some like intensive like herbalism classes, um, that I, in addition to doing, um, the end of life doula training, I was also, um, took some, some classes around like plant-based medicine and things like that as a sort of like supplemental, um, supportive modality to the doula work and, um, to be like another also like source of income. So now it's like this kind of like puzzle piece of these, all these sort of like freelance things that kind of, kind of fit together and like inter in an intricate puzzle to kind of like more, um, yeah, to be, to be more financially, um, stable, um, you know, and my partner and I are married now, but so it's, so we have access to this like beautiful apartment that we live in and things like that. So it's like, I don't know, I wish I had a different answer than, um, than essentially what my mom predicted about marrying up. But to be ultimately honest, um, it's been through this relationship that's like allowed me to like sort of like have more of like a springboard. In a way I feel that, but then in another way, I'm like, you know, like we're all like this idea of like independence or like sort of like doing it on our own, like is this like mythology that is really unhealthy, it's ableist, it's capitalist, it's all these things that I don't really believe in. And, you know, it's like all of these things, like even like the, the, the springboard, even the, the woman who was very problematic in the way that she um, supported me and my family in certain ways. She also, like I said, like did give me this like springboard, you know, to be able to go to college, like by helping me to apply and getting me the plane ticket and things like that. It's like none of us are an island and there's no such thing as like doing it on our own. So I've had these like little like helpful you know prop ups like by people in my community in various ways like from the youngest of ages and like some people get that through biological family support and others get it in other ways and so these are the ways that I've been able to tap into it I guess I don't know if that makes sense but yeah 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 um yeah that makes a lot of sense and I appreciate your like transparency mm -hmm. and kind of this reframing around um kind of yeah putting out there these messages from both your mom but also culturally societally about this like value of independence yeah. and really kind of framing it and like the ways in which it's ableist and capitalist and mm -hmm. racist and, yeah yeah um, right and um so thank you for kind of sharing about kind of mm -hmm. how bringing us um, 
forward into kind of how you're now doing this this patchwork of mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. yeah totally different things and... yeah and like you know now it's like it's interesting because like i i'm entirely freelance and i it's like it's kind of it's like i i own my own business in a sense like that has these different arms and branches or whatever so i'm like my, i'm my own boss like i'll, I'll get like contracted out to do various things um edu- like as an, like an educator or facilitator sometimes um but but for the most part i pretty much just like make my own schedule and that's kind of pretty remarkable um that i get to do that and that it has become more every with every you know it's just like with i'm learning like with every sort of like business owner like there's like there is like usually like a few years where you kind of just barely break even kind of thing and then you start to you know have income um and so i'm i'm thankfully i'm i'm having i'm at the place where i'm having income and like and that and that has been the case for the past like few years so it's like only growing so it's like getting more and more feeling like i have this like um you know financial viability that is you know is my own it's like it's been important to my partner and i for us to feel like i don't ever want to feel like i have to be in this relationship because I fear going back to like a financial instability, you know what I mean? And like the, and like the, the trauma that I have like around financial instability. Um, and so, but it's important to our relationship, like as like a, like healthy people who want to be interdependent rather than codependent and you know what I mean? Or like, or have one of us be independent on the other. Um, like, it's been important for us to have like really concrete conversations like around money and around like, it being important for me to like feel like I'm really building my practices so that I, eventually I can feel even more and more like even if like something you know we're committed to each other and we have like we have like this idea of what that means hopefully being for a very long if not lifelong time um but we don't want it to be out of like necessity you know what I mean like we want it to be out of like a mutual love and appreciation and like growth and work together um that feels that that hopefully disrupts the power dynamic as much as we can um and so yeah so the more I do work to make myself feel like I can kind of financially stand on my own two feet um, the more that feels possible to sort of feel that sort of equity um within our relationship you know Hmm. Um, so I um, am aware of the time it's one thirty-five. Mm. okay um, and I guess I'm kind of curious maybe as a place to a place to bring our conversation to um to a close, um, but I want to hear if there's other things that you mm-hmm. really want to kind of put out there. But I remember in a, I was at one of your dance classes um, at Gibney mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, recently, and you described um, the difference of like some people are light workers and mm. some people are dark dark workers, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you self-identified as a dark worker mm-hmm, and um mm-hmm. today's a new moon yes and yes. i'm kind of struck by the fact too that when we started talking um that with your your mom kind of a lot of that being this like predictive um mm. dream work around death mm. and dying mm. and some of the ways mm. in which then your cousin sarah mm-hmm. also her death 
um, and trauma around her death kind of brought you back to mm. these some of these spiritual totally. practices yeah. and stuff like I'm, yeah. um, and, and then I, I guess I'm also kind of thinking and holding about the the ways in which gender and queerness has been a site of both um, of kind of this this lifelong um, truth and like pleasure and desire but also these moments of it being a site of trauma mm-hmm. too and I mm-hmm. so I guess I'm kind of curious if you could speak kind of in closing around what it means for you to be a dark worker mm-hmm. who is working at the working and living mm-hmm. and practicing out of the intersections mm-hmm. of totally. all of these different identities yeah 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 that's great yeah well just to give like folks who are listening, I guess, the more context about, like, sort of, like, the framework around, like, light workers and dark workers as, as, as I understand it and as it's been taught to me, um, is, um, really it having to do with the waning and the waxing of the moon and, um, when you as a sort of connected spiritual being, um, in relationship to the waning and the waxing of the moon, when you get whatever feels like your sort of surge of energy, like your time where you feel really, rooted and grounded or powerful whatever that means to you it's like we kind of have these often like we'll have these sort of like ebbs and flows that if we if we follow the and track the the stars and the planets and the and the waning and the waxing of the moon we can start to to find these um visceral emotional spiritual patterns within ourselves as well that's very much connected i feel like to those like celestial relationships and um uh and so uh for me dark workers just means that that it's being somebody who gets that sort of surge of energy during the new moon like feeling very grounded during that time like feeling very much like that's like a time where i can really um like harness my magic in a way that feels really clear um for me um the full moon time is um and for i think for many people who are like dark workers um full moon time feels like a little bit too much like it's like the brightness of the full moon it's like for me it feels like a frenetic energy it's like oh wow like i'm like prone to accidents like around that time like it's like i might have more difficulty sleeping um things like that i have other friends who very much are like sort of in their power during that full moon time like there are these light workers and like they feel you know they just like feel this like surge of amazing magic energy that they're able to harness as well and so um i find that yeah, and, and they're the types of, yeah, and the, I think that the, the types of magic that one might be inclined to being a dark worker or a light worker, I think can often like mirror things that um, one might associate with the light or with the dark. And when I say that, I mean, and when I say the dark, I, I'm talking about um, like shadow material often like things that are buried within our subconscious like things that are sort of like needing to um things that are that sometimes get buried in our subconscious because of trauma and like things that sort of um maybe we need a light to shine on them to sort of like bring them forward but it's like this like um you know yeah that those those are things that i that, that i associate with working within the dark um and um you know so it would be like i mean birth work like things that like have to do with like the full moon like sort of like um 
you know, like birth work doula. So, so to me, feels very much like full moon, sort of like light work, like sort of like new begin, like sort of this sort sort of like. Or I don't actually want to say new beginnings because that, that's like a that's like a the the new moon is like the intention setting time. That's like the seed germination time. It's like that sort of like underground um, planting time. Uh, the the full moon is like that it is like the sort of like full belly i guess the things coming into fruition like sort of like the like like aha moments which i guess i associate in some ways with like the birth um but with um yeah with how i relate to being a dark worker i would say that for me um i mean in general i think that we're kind of in a society that when we talk about healing that is sort of um obsessed with the light only like um that you know i think it has to do with um i, I think it has to do with whiteness and like racist tropes like sort of like like when people say like dark magic like usually they're talking about like practices that they associate with black folks and other people of color that like are you know that are considered like taboo and like sort of like you know demonic in various ways or whatever and by calling it like dark magic i think that that also there's like a a racist thread that line that's sort of in alignment and with that as well and i think that with people who are in the current sort of there is there has been a surge i would say in the past like several years of people moving more and more toward like culturally i think like as like in in the u.s anyway but i think also all over like towards mysticism more so like i, I feel like i'm seeing more and more like um people who are this has been a lifelong thing for for me but but others um seem to just be kind of like also coming into it and um, I think that that has a lot to do with maybe like our current political moment. Like there's like a lot of things like people are searching in a lot of ways. And I think that that, that spirituality can be a thing that people find when they're feeling really disenchanted with our current state of the world. And so it makes sense to me that people are moving toward it. But I think that just like everything else, there's like these like harmful ways of, yeah, even even with like quote unquote good intentions, it's like this thing that gets like like literally like whitewashed. Like when like all you see in people's you know Instagram posts or whatever are all about love and light or high vibes only or you know what I mean. Like it literally is um, only about like you know I don't know taking baths with rose petals and crystals and you know what I mean like it's like this and it's often very it can be like appropriative like of like various like spiritual practices and traditions that don't actually have any anchoring in like an ancestral lineage and tradition like these these kinds of things you know what I mean is a, is a kind of violence that I think that that is moving towards this sort of like lightness that like, like in the sense of like sort of like the like toxic toxic positivity that's almost kind of kind of like brings me back to like the midwest like politeness mm. you know what i mean like it's like kind of like i'm reminded of it a little bit you know what i mean like that's like um doesn't allow people to be complex in their embodiment um doesn't allow people to reckon with trauma and sort of do the deep the deep shadow work um, in the subconscious, what I, what I believe is like deep in the subconscious, um, that I think to me is like where the dark magic happens. And so, um, I think it's true that being a dark worker means asking myself and asking others to do the difficult work around healing trauma indi individually, interpersonally and societally, um, 
and that means being with the challenging material, like sitting with all of our contradictions, sitting with, um, yeah, like just like, like allowing ourselves to really like reckon with the ways in which we have been harmed and the ways that we have caused harm. Um, to me falls into that sort of shadow, working with the shadow um, and learning to heal in the dark. Um, and I think that as a society, we need actually a lot more of that dark work magic at this time because people are, I think, tending to want to sort of dissociate and sort of like skip some steps, you know, skip some steps to get to the light. But we really need both. It's always a balance, a cycle of life, life and of death. Um, the sense of regeneration and rebirth and I think that the dark workers um, that we have a lot to share um, around uh, having a, a rooted connection to, to healing trauma to, to letting ourselves be complex um, in these ways that you can come with your whole self you don't have to be high vibes only does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> there's yes there's a story in um in Troy that has a big old sign outside that says good vibes, mm -hmm. good vibes only. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for all of this um, really um, kind of nuanced and textured kind of reflection about what it means to be um, a healer, an artist, a carrier of lineages both from the past and kind of into into this like future work mm -hmm. um i'm kind of curious is there anything that you feel like we i mean i feel like we could keep talking for i know hours. forever <laughs> um, and there's so many other things that i would love to ask you about but i guess i'm curious um yeah if there's anything that you really mm. kind of want to make sure mm. is is out there Huh. I mean, well, okay. So you brought up the word like boundaries. I feel like, um, and actually I think that boundary work too is to me also connected to this like, um, trauma informed healing that I also sort of associate with like dark work. And, um, and so, and I think that, yeah, it's interesting. Cause like, I think when you mentioned about at the, toward the beginning and we were talking about stuff around my childhood and talking about like the ways in which like public and private and, um, various things were constituted like sort of like this uh, it's interesting because because uh, I feel like the 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 thing that I was not instilled in me from a very young age was having this like healthy sense of boundaries and I think that that's true of a lot of us I think I had pretty extreme examples of the ways in which boundaries were not health healthfully set up for me um, and it's something only in my like older age and as I continue to age that I have come to understand are very much like needed um, to, to feel safe and to feel like a sense of um, connection to my body, a connection to a home, connection to so many things um, means, um, you know, having to say no to certain things, you know, and having to say like, this is what I will accept into my space and this is what I will not. And so I think that that's like, I mean, getting back to this like high vibes only thing or whatever, I mean, that, that it's interesting because I think it's like a skewed thing about 
the imp- yeah per- it's like this the cute skewed thing about like the importance of like protecting our energy and protecting you know like there there is this like important thing that I think I've learned as a doula a death doula as well it's like you do have to really put on your own air mask before you can assist it's like the airplane you know you have to do you have to take care of yourself um, first so that you're able to bring yourself to your community and that I feel like has to do with like healthy boundary setting it's a really difficult lesson to learn as a trauma survivor but I think it's a difficult lesson that we're all learning and I think that there's like something there that um yeah it's like I understand why why people say things like high vibes only you know what I mean like and say like it's like it's a it's an in an, 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 an effort to protect their energy in a sense but 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 what does that mean and and how do we yeah how do how do we how do we create boundaries that also make others um basically like i'm interested in like making sure that no one is disposable you know like making sure that um that we can all work through this like really complex hard stuff uh in community and together um and independently uh, like individually um and a lot of it is it is this like constant negotiation between self and other determining what my boundaries are um and and like listening it's like this deep inner listening and listening to others as well i don't know i was just thinking about that as as we were sort of finishing yeah um yeah kind of um this this like distinction between like a healthy boundary versus like um like a violent border yes yes Um, totally totally yeah yeah totally yeah we could go on for that for a long time talking about that but yeah exactly yeah yeah um and I think kind of this kind of thinking through especially for for so many people but uniquely it seems like for trans folks where there's so many like in, 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 and for queer folks, like so many internal kind of negotiating that happens mm-hmm. of, of like, mm-hmm. of how one orients yeah. towards one's own gender identity and relationship to self and other, that mm-hmm. that kind of being mindful, and you brought up kind of this like, that it's, all of it's a cycle. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so that, like, deep listening about the constant negotiation yeah. through those cycles of life and death and yeah. protection, but also, you know, you were bringing up kind of community aid and mm-hmm. mutual aid and solidarity work mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Um, kind of, and even thinking about the fact that you're a dancer, that so much mm-hmm. of it is seems to be this movement. Yes, totally. That it has this, um, yeah, movement, movement is the perfect word for it. That like in in anything, we're not so fixed and rigid, you know, that there's, there's, there's room for growth and there's room for shift and that we're, we're moving, we're moving together in this sort of like deeply attuned way internally and externally, um, is an ideal that I have, I would say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to 